Chapter 11, The Best in the Country, Same Day, Monday, January 7th, 1935. When my dad tells my mum, she seems to have no reaction. She goes in her room, puts on her regular clothes and comes out with her purse and her gloves in her hand. Let's go, she says, her face down blank, her eyes dead. Uh, Sit down, honey, my father says. We don't have to go right this minute. Let's just take a deep breath here. Now, my mum says, waiting like a child at the door. My father's shoulders are hunched. He gets his shoes, jacket and hat and starts to open the door. No, my mother says, you can't go. You have to be at work at eight. I'll go myself. You can't go by yourself. Yes. My mum shoves my dad hard. His arm bangs a wall. My mouth falls open. I've never seen her do anything like this. Moose, my father asks, his voice quiet. Will you go with your mother? On the boat, my mum seems better. Her eyes are angry now, not dead. Here we go again, I think. Before the Esther P. Marinoff, the Barryman School was it. And before that, the heat treatments... And before that, the aluminium formula. And before that, UCLA. At UCLA, they made us cut Natalie's hair. Shaved it right off. They tested her like she was some sort of insect. They tested the movement of her eyes, the sensitivity of her ears, the colour of her pee. They tested allergies, reflexes, muscle strength, her speech in a dark room, her reaction to Tchaikovsky, the way she ate, slept, burped blew her nose and even what she thought especially what she thought nothing about her was private at home she'd spend hours in her room rocking like a boat in a terrible storm but it was ucla my mother would remind us when she said the name it had a golden glow they had promised us a cure if a word my mother can't ever seem to hear natalie's problem fit the diagnosis they were studying and so I spent months riding in the rumble seat of my gram's car to and from Westwood and hours sitting in the waiting room until the day they let us know their findings. An interesting case, they said, but not what we're looking for. You should consider donating her brain to science when she dies. When she dies, my mother said, she's ten years old. They shrugged their shoulders and handed my dad a bill. Things fell apart at my house after that. Ants in the sink, flies on the garbage, cereal for supper, no clean dishes, Natalie in the same dirty dress, the blood of picked scabs on her arm. It was months before my mother left the house again, and that was with my mum's sisters, my gram and grandpa, her friends and cousins all around. I don't remember when my mum decided Natalie was going to stay ten. I think it might have been then. Sitting in Mr Purdy's office, I imagined punching him in the nose, my arms twitching just thinking about it. I'm afraid, Mr Purdy explains when he comes in, she's more involved than we can handle right now. We're equipped for boys with the kind of challenges your daughter faces, but not girls. You might want to look into Deerham in Marin County. Mr. Purdy hands my mother a card with an address scribbled on it. Dear, dear him? 
my mother my mother's voice catches isn't that uh, an asylum oh i don't think it's helpful to get caught up with words mrs flanagan we're looking for a way to help your daughter let's not let words come between us my mother takes her green feathered hat off as if she's staying the kids who graduate from your school get jobs they have lives some of them do get jobs yes that's what i want for natalie i understand that mrs flanagan but it's not what working out for her here it's only been two days surely even a usual child would have some adjustment to a new setting mr purdy grunts mr purdy is the kind of man who can make a grunt seem polite my husband and i my mum continues I've done a lot of research on this and we believe this program, your program, is the best in the country. You are turning out kids who can function in the world. That's kind of you to say, but, and I don't think, my mother is unstoppable, that we will be able to replicate your success elsewhere. So I wonder if there isn't some way we could make this work. Mr. Purdy shakes his head. She can't stay here now. But if you wish, I can put you in touch with someone who might be able to help Natalie. Help her get ready, my mother offers. She sits up straighter in her chair. Yes, Mr. Purdy smiles, his ladylike hands fingertip to fingertip. He tips them toward my mother like he's rolling a ball to her. Then he swivels in his squeaking chair to get a folder behind him. He copies down a number onto a slip of paper and hands it to my mother. My mother looks at the page, then folds it closed. Mr. Purdy stands up to signal the end of our meeting. I stand up too. My mother does not. Mr. Purdy and I sit down again. I'm proud of my friends for this. Proud of her for getting all she can from this man. But I'm angry too. No matter what this little paper says, my mother will do it. Once, she sent away for voodoo dolls and carefully followed the instructions some witch doctor in the West Indies wrote about how to relieve Natalie's condition. Another time she took Natalie to a church where everybody stood up and waved their arms. She read the Bible to her for two hours every day while Natalie sat staring at her right hand as if there were a movie playing on her palm. And she couldn't bear to pull herself away. And then there was a school where my mum had taught music classes for free until they let Natalie in. And when they did, Natalie just sat in the fancy classroom, tearing bits of paper into tiny pieces. With Natalie, there is never a happy ending, but my mum won't ever believe that. Forgive me, Mr. Purdy. I'd like to know what happened, my mum says, her brown eyes staring him down. I I had hoped Mr. Flanagan would be here with you, Mr. Purdy looks at me. My husband is working the evening shift. Ah, of course, Mr. Purdy nods. He looks around his cluttered office as if he's searching for a way out. Uh, Natalie is, I would say, unresponsive. He peeks at my mother to see if, if this will do. My mother doesn't blink. I'm afraid she, there was a bit of a skirmish over a box of buttons and some unfortunate behaviour. Your 
there is ten, you said, Mrs. Flanagan. Mr. Purdy's watery eyes are suddenly sharply focused on my mum. Yes, my mother says, her white gloved fingers closed into a tight fist around the handle of her green pocketbook. She gets up early. She likes to watch the sunrise, I say. Mr. Purdy looks at me, then back at my mum. As you can see, we are located in Presidio Heights. It's a fine residential neighbourhood, but perhaps not an ideal spot for someone like your daughter. His voice trails off. My mother waits. And though our neighbours are largely encouraging of what we're trying to do here, we must be cautious about taking children who might strain the relationships we've worked so hard to build. Children who are you, one might say, overly vocal? She screamed, my mother asks. Uh, yes, she did, for the better part of uh, an hour, I'm afraid. Your daughter's voice is, is quite shrill, and coupled with her early rising habits. But you think this is something that my mother holds up, the folded slip of paper. Mrs. Kelly can help us with? Indeed I do, Mr. Purdy says, standing up again. He has his goodbye smile on and he's looking at his watch. And why is this different for boys? She asks. The boys' cottage is located in the old maid's quarter, which is farther from the neighbours. Mr. Purdy sits down again. He sketches a quick map for us. It looks like a bad pirate's map with an X marked for the treasure. Did you take her buttons away? I ask. My mum looks at me, then back at Mr. Purdy. We can't have a child who screams like a banshee at 5.15 in the morning in a neighbourhood like this. Now, if you'd like to spend some time working with Mrs. Kelly, there's a good possibility she can help Natalie bring this problem under control. I can promise you, of course, but if Mrs. Kelly feels that Natalie is ready for our program, we'll consider her application again in May. My mother is up now, offering her hand to Mr. Purdy to shake. Of course, my husband and I appreciate all the help you've given us. In the waiting room, Natalie's legs are open, the way my mother tells her always not to sit. She is seated on a needlepoint brocade chair, and I see by the way her finger is moving that she is counting the stitches in the seat. We wait until she finishes the last stitch at the bottom, before she starts again with the first stitch at the top. Our timing is perfect. We've had a lot of practice at this, my mother and I. I grab the old brown suitcase that says Natalie Flanagan on all six sides, and we hustle Natalie out of the door. She's walking behind us now, a teenage girl, acting as if she's eight. Chapter 12. What about the electric chair? Tuesday, January 8th, 1935. The next morning seems just like normal with Natalie watching the sun rise and then asking for lemon cake, and my mum telling her she's a silly little sweet pea and she can't have it. My mum has the little slip of paper Mr Purdy gave her, taped to the icebox door. Twice now she's asked my father how early he thinks she should call. 
I hurry past the Matamams on the way to the boat for school. The fog's in and everything is grey. The foghorns bellow deep low notes, first one end of the island, then the other. When I get to the Trixels, Teresa Matamam sticks her head out. Moose, can I come with you? To school? I ask. Don't you have a kindergarten at the Kakoni's apartment? Teresa ducks her head back inside. Janet, I'm sorry, I have to go to school with Moose today. I hear her yell. Janet is B. Trixel's daughter. She's the same age as Teresa, but that is the one and only similarity they have. Mommy! Janet whines. Teresa's escaping again! Teresa, you can't go out. I told your mummy I'd look after you. You know that, I hear Beatrixel call. Ah, Teresa groans. When is my mum getting back from the hospital? Having a baby couldn't possibly take this long. Do you think she went shopping? Teresa, Beatrixel calls. Come get me as soon as you get home, Teresa hisses, and she ducks back inside. When I get down to the Frank M. Cox, Piper is there waiting for me. It's been so caught, I've been so caught up with Natalie, I forgot all about Piper's project. I wonder how long before she brings it up. Boys first, she says. For a second I hesitate, wondering if she has the gangplank booby-trapped. You know, Moose... You owe me an apology. She clatters across the gangplank behind me. For what? I ask. Thinking of at least 300 things she could be, apolo- be apologising for. I shouldn't have made you meet with my dad. I was just worried about your sister is all. But now that she's safely off the island. What do I say to this? She's got to know Nat's back. My father told everyone when he didn't show up for the party at the officers' club, right? Oh, I say. Oh? Do you accept my apology or not? Oh, I, I accept your apology. Okay, Piper says. And I just wanted to explain something else too. Helping me with laundry isn't against the warden's rules. Here it comes. Oh, really? I say. You bet, she says. All right, let's ask your dad if it's okay, I say. Do you ask permission to put on your underwear every morning? I'm just pointing out. I know exactly what you're pointing out, but no one here sticks to those stupid rules. You're the only one, Moose Flanagan, I shrug. And besides that, You'll be going back on your word. You told my dad you'd help me. You promised. Why should I help you? You treat me like I'm something stuck on the bottom of your shoe. She smiles her most charming smile. I'll be nice now. No, you won't. Well, for a little while anyway. I laugh. It sneaks out the corner of my mouth before I can stop it. She laughs too. An icy wind blows her hair off her shoulders and bites through my sweater. Let's go inside, she says. The boat pitches in the wake of a big ferry. I walk as if I've just learned how. Grasping the side of the door, I get myself inside the cabin. 
where it's warm and steamy like hot chocolate. Piper's cheeks and the tip of her nose are rosy. Her long hair is blown every which way. The cabin is empty except for two guards and a scrawny little man in a suit. The scrawny man is handcuffed to one of the guards. The hair on the back of my neck stands up. Oh, that's Weasel on his way to court, Piper says. What for? Another appeal, probably. He's one of those convicts that knows as much about the law as lawyers do. They call them jailhouse lawyers. My dad says Weasel could convince the hens they're better off with a fox in charge and then persuade the jury it was in the chicken's best interest to be eaten. You know, Annie would never do this if there was even the slightest chance she'd get in trouble for it. She's back to her plan now. You know Annie, and neither would Jimmy. Now, not if it were really against the rules, Piper said. I look at Weasel again. Forget it, Piper. What if I promise to be nice to your sister? Will you then? She asks. I'll think about it, I say. Well, think fast, because I'm doing it today. You'll be nice to Natalie, no matter what. Promise, swear to God, she says. Never call her names. Never tell your dad stuff about her. Treat her really kind. Double swear to God. She holds her hand up like someone swearing her in. I stare at her right through her pretty brown eyes. There's something true in those eyes and something false too. I nod. All right. You'll help. I suppose, I say, careful not to look at Weasel again. She rubs her hands together. We're in business. All you need to do is talk about Alcatraz. Get people in the right mood. You'll talk up the place, kind of like the warm-up, and I'll tell a few people and then let the word spread. You must know some Alcatraz stories, she says as the motor grinds beneath our feet. Inside her notebook, she shows me a small sign. Once in a lifetime opportunity. Get your clothes laundered by Al Capone and other world famous public enemies. All clothes cleaned on Alcatraz at the only laundry facility in the world run by convicted felons, including the notorious Scarface Al and Machine Gun Kelly. Only costs five cents. I groan. Al Capone? It's only one little mention. She flashes her movie star smile. Nope, not doing it. She ignores this. We walk off the boat now, just behind Weasel and his guards. Follow my lead. Then, when I leave, you take over. That's all you have to do. Talk. Did the warden say talking was against the rules, Moose Man? Talking about Al Capone is... Fine, don't talk about him then. He's not the only convict we have, you know. Jeepers. In Miss Blimp's Bimp's class, Piper moves into action. She motions me to the back of the room where history books are stacked waist high and a bunch of kids are copying answers for last night's homework. My head says don't follow her, but my feet walk back there. It's been a hard week, don't you think, Moose? Piper says to me so loud she clearly means to be overheard. 
Did you see that shiv? What's a shiv? The girl asks. Oh, it's a dagger made of old silverware carved out of a pot handle. The Khans use them to stab each other or kill our dads, Piper says, though she barely looks at the girl, as if relaying this information is not her aim at all. I guess they found it in a library book, Piper says. Pages carved out in a knife shape. How did they find it? Do do you know, Moose? I shrug. He knows. He just doesn't want to tell. Piper glares at me, then slips away. So what happened? The girl demands. Someone got stabbed, I guess, I say. What's the uh, inside of the cell house look like? The fat kid asks. I've never been in there, I say. But my dad says the cells are like cages. Each one has a toilet, a sink, a bed and a man. What about the electric chair? Anybody seen that? The girl wants to know. Uh, We don't have one. How about them firing squads? The fat kid is turned all the way round in his seat. This is the United States of America. We, We don't have firing squads, I explain. Yeah, that's not how we knock people off here. We fry them. I've read all about it. It's like... A skinny kid shakes all over to demonstrate. What about the metal brackets, you know, handcuffs and whoozy what's it's on the legs? I think maybe they just wear them for, you know, special occasions, I explain. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Piper talking to Dell. If he goes for this, everyone else will too. So what happened? Scout asks. With a shiv in the library book, the girl seems proud of herself for knowing the word now. Like I said, somebody sliced up a guy, maybe killed him. I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's the thing about the cell house library, I say. It's a high-risk operation. Really? The girl asks. Uh, Books are overdue, I explain. They lock you up. They have a special cell for it. Overdue library book cell. If it's more than 10 days overdue, they they put you in the hole. Solitary confinement. No kidding. The fat kid asks. I can see him fingering his library book, which I'm guessing is past due. Oh yeah, I say. I'm starting to enjoy myself. And you should see what happens when you forget to say please. Bread and water for... An entire week. Forget thank you and it's even worse. Oh, come on, somebody says. Uh, Forget to wash your hands before supper. They slap you in leg irons. Prison is a bad place, I'm telling you. Scout is biting his lip, trying not to laugh. Most everyone knows I'm kidding, but one girl isn't too sure. On the other hand, I say... We have the politest felons in America. They say, please, thank you, pardon, and excuse me. If you're going to be robbed or murdered, you really want a polite guy to do it. Uh, somebody who offers you a chair and some milk and cookies first. It's, it's kind of be- like being shot by your grandmother. Wouldn't you prefer that? You must learn a lot living there, the skinny girl says. She's taking in my every word. Oh, yeah. On weekends, there are special classes the cons teach us. 
You learn how to blow safes and make silencers, steal cars, thieve school, we call it. Homework's tough, though. Ever tried to get a dead body in a rumble seat? Everyone laughs. They all know I'm kidding now. Then the bell rings. Thank God, because I'm out of stories. I look around and see Dell has disappeared. He comes back a few minutes later with his sweater on, but nothing but bare skin underneath. He rolls his shirt up and hands it to Piper, who is busy talking to Scout. Sign in hand. When we are all settled in our seat, Miss Bimp starts rattling on about the importance of good posture and how no cultivated lady or gentleman would dream of slumping during oral reports the way certain members of this class are doing. She is just getting warmed up when the notes start appearing. How about tomorrow? One pencil rolled scrap of paper asks. No, only today, Piper writes back in her back slanted cursive. How much for socks, another says. Two cents, Piper writes back. Will my blouse come back bloody? My mum will kill me if I ruin my blouse. No. Can you advance me a nickel? No. Please, the note comes back again. This time written in pencil grinding capital letters. No, Piper scribbles mercilessly. When class ends, two lines form outside the bathrooms. One by one, Miss Bimp's students come out, sweaters over bare chests, shoes with no socks, jumpers with no shirts beneath. I watch from a distance as they hand Piper their clothes and their money. Please, Piper, I can take off my dress. I just can't. Can I bring something tomorrow? Penelope begs Piper. I'm sorry, Piper explains. She rolls her lips together and shakes her head. Our arrangement simply won't allow that kind of flexibility. She looks really sorry too, as if she would change the rules in a second if only she could. The girl marches off to the bathroom and returns, slip in hand. Can't do it. Too, you know, personal, Piper tells the girl, whose face is now as red as her hair. At the end of the day, I see two eighth grade guys walking home bare chested shivering in the grey foggy afternoon. Piper limited her sales efforts to the 7th grade class but probably they had a friend in the 7th grade send their clothes in. I'll bet Piper got twice as many 8th grade kids this way. I have to admit Piper is pretty smart but she's going to get into trouble for this. I just know it. Chapter 13. One Woman Commando Unit. Wednesday, January 9th, 1935. I hear something funny when I get up the next morning, and when I go outside I find Piper stuffing extra clothes in our laundry bags. What are you doing? I ask her. What does it look like? You won't help. So, what am I supposed to do? You're just lucky I caught you and not my mum or dad, I say. But as soon as I say, as I say this, I'm sorry I said it. It sounds pretty lame. Oh, unlucky, huh? She smiles, so pleased with herself. She can hardly stand it. I guess that means you won't tell. My ears are hot, 
I feel big and stupid and I don't know what to say, so I go back inside, hoping someone else will catch her. While I'm in the bathroom looking for my toothbrush, my mum corners me. Moose, honey, she says, I have some good news for you. She's smiling like she wants something. Things are going to change around here. My mum takes a lock of hair that's supposed to be on one side of my part and puts it on the other. Mum, I raise my eyebrows. Something she needs reminding that I'm not five anymore. She smiles and nods her head as if she understands she's made a mistake, then gives me a once-over. Have you grown out of your trousers? I look down at my feet. A good four inches of sock are showing. Go put your other ones on, the brown ones, my mother says. I go in my room, happy to have an excuse to put a door between us. I met with Carrie Kelly yesterday, my mother calls through the door. Oh, she says we need to do a clean sweep. Throw away Nat's button box. There'll be no more counting for her, no more obsessions. My gut tightens. I come out with the brown corduroys on. Mum, I squeeze a word out of my throat. Mrs Kelly says we can't let ourselves get in Natalie's way. She said we're the stumbling block. If Natalie's going to change, we have to change first. I blow air out of my mouth like I'm whistling with no sound. Oh, so now it's our fault? Moose, my mother insists. You know what I mean. You only met with her once, Mum. Did she even meet Natalie? Of course, she spent all afternoon with her, my mum says. And then natters on about how Natalie's not supposed to count, not supposed to rock. Not supposed to play with her buttons. Not supposed to do anything she actually likes to do. Yes, ma'am, I say, searching the medicine cabinet for my toothbrush. Then I figure out where it is. Natalie. My mother follows me as I march into Natalie's room. Nat isn't here. My father has taken her out to the parade grounds to give my mum a break. Yep, here's the toothbrush. Natalie has stacks of buttons in perfect lines all around it like little soldiers guarding something precious. I reach for my toothbrush but I can't make myself disturb her perfect button world. Well, actually, my mother's voice has softened. There's a wheedle in it now. I freeze my hand on that store. Uh, this involves you. I've lined up some piano lessons to teach in the city. The warden is very well connected and he has been kind enough to introduce me to a number of families who are looking for a piano teacher. Uh, we need money, Moose. Carrie Kelly costs a small fortune and so does the Esther P. Marinoff, so I'll need you to come straight home from school. I have to be on the four o'clock boat and that is probably cutting it too close. She shakes her head and bites her bottom lip. I'm supposed to watch Natalie. Mrs. Kelly says you can take her with you wherever you go, just like any other sister. This stops me. I face my mum. Mum, nobody takes his sister with him everywhere he goes. My mum's shoulders hunch down and little excitement drains out of her face. Well, they could, she says. I stare at her, suspicious now. What do you mean, wherever I go? I ask, waving the tooth powder at her. Wherever you go. 
Mom, it's dangerous. You're the one who's always telling me how. That's what I mean. My mother is all excited again. I'm back in the bathroom mixing the tooth powder and water in the palm of my hand. My mum has followed me. Her eyes are shining and she's smiling at the end of every sentence. That's what's changing. Mrs Kelly says this is just what Natalie needs. We need to help Natalie join the human race. Mom, I brush my teeth with my finger. We live on an island with 278 murderers, kidnappers, thieves... Maybe this isn't the exact part of the human race we want her to join. Funny you should mention this. Because I was talking to Beatrixel about this yesterday and you know what she said? She said we are so lucky to live here because Alcatraz is a lot safer than any neighbourhood in San Francisco. She says she never locks her door. She never has to. Our bad guys are all locked up. You know how your dad is always saying the ratio of inmate to guard is 3 to 1 here compared to 10 to 1 at San Quentin? Which makes Alcatraz a much safer prison. And in the city... Oh, great. I mutter as I make a cup with my hands and run water into it. Then rinse the tooth powder out of my mouth. It's safer than San Quentin, the second worst prison in the state. And in the city... My mother says this louder, as if to drown out my comment. Beatrixel says those same criminals are out free. Does the warden even know Natalie's here? Or does he still think she's at Esther P. Marinoff? Of course he knows, Moose, but that doesn't mean I want you to parade her around in front of him. I won't lie to you, he isn't wild about the idea of her living here. Then she should stay inside. Don't be silly. You don't need to hide. Go about your business like you would if Nat wasn't with you. Just don't go looking for the warden, all right? Natalie doesn't know how to swim, Mom. What if she falls in? Well, we do have to be careful of that, but I don't want you near the water either. Anything that's not safe for Natalie is not safe for you, so if you really think it's so dangerous here, Moose... Then maybe we should move back home. Good idea, I say, my voice low and hard. Moose. My mother's eyes are like the lit end of a cigarette, burning into me. Then I remember, baseball. You don't really mean every day. Yes, I do. Well, I can't Monday. I'm playing ball after school. She sighs. I have lessons scheduled for Monday, Moose, but I have nothing for Tuesday. What do you say I try to keep that day free for you? Monday is when they play, Mom, not Tuesday. The scout said. Well, ask this scout person to play on Tuesday. I hardly know the guy. How am I supposed to get him to put together a whole game just for me? Ask him, that's how, my mother says, and then softens. Look, I know this isn't easy for you. I know you'd rather not have any responsibilities, but the fact is you do. If you play baseball on Alcatraz, you can play every day. Almost no one plays here. Graham doesn't live down the street anymore, honey, my mum sighs. We can't do this without you. Being around kids is good for Natalie. Mrs Kelly says so. And if she's to get accepted in the Esther P. Marinoff, my mum is like a one-man commando unit. 
She could win land battles, air battles, water battles, outer space battles too, probably. I wonder if there would be time to get Natalie and then get back to school in time to play ball with the guys. It would be embarrassing to have her there, but at least I could play. Could I take her to San Francisco? I ask. No. Why not? You just said, I just said it isn't safe there. It isn't safe there, but it's safe here? Crammed right up close with America's worst criminals? We've been through this already, Moose. How long will you be gone? I ask. Even when I'm here, you'll need to take her outside with you, Moose. What, what kind of kid experience is she going to have following me around? She can't mean this. Please, someone tell me she didn't say this. Moose, my mother reaches out for my chin again and tips my face towards her. I need you. Your dad needs you and Natalie needs you most of all. Let's give this a try, shall we? Let's just see how it goes. I pull my head away and walk toward my room. What if I don't want to see how it goes? What if I've been seeing how it goes my whole life? I whisper. Tuesday. See if Scout can play on Tuesday. Is that too much to ask? Chapter 14. Al Capone's Baseball. Same day, Wednesday, January 9th, 1935. I'm so mad at my mum. That's all I can think about. I don't care about whether Piper got caught or Jimmy or Annie had any trouble getting the extra clothes by their mums. I don't care about anything except figuring out how I'm going to get Scout to change the baseball day. When I get to Miss Bimp's class, Scout's already in his seat. We chat for a minute, then I take a deep breath and blurt it out. Uh, do you think we could get a game together for Tuesday after school instead of Mondays? We play Mondays, Scout says, working a hole in his ledger with, the, with his pencil. Yeah, I, I know, but I can't come Mondays. How about Tuesdays? Do they lock you in on Mondays? He laughs. I don't. My mum teaches piano. i got to go back to watch my sister. I leave out the part about my sister being older than me and nutty as a fruitcake. He nods like he understands. Uh, maybe we could, you know, I don't know, uh, play another game on Tuesdays, I say, trying again. Piper said uh, they play ball on Alcatraz. The prisoners, I mean. Maybe you could play with them or... Better yet, get us both in the game? He smiles. His smile is the only part of him that doesn't move fast. Uh, we're not allowed. Oh, well, wouldn't want to play with them anyway. Probably steal all the bases. I laugh. Think Capone plays? My throat tightens. Who knew not talking about Capone was going to be so hard? I don't know, I say. I heard he plays first base. I'd like to see that. Do they let you, you know, watch? I shake my head. Nope. But if the baseballs come flying over the prison wall, you get to keep them. Really? Al Capone's baseball? I don't guess you'd know it was his. You have one? Nope. Well, 
you get one, I'd like to have a look-see. Beats getting my shirt washed, that's for sure. Yep, I'm smart at this. Anyway, I can't play next Tuesday. i got to watch my kid's sister and my two little brothers, but maybe Tuesday after next? It was fun playing with you, you great second, but I'll try, okay? Okay, I say. Mrs. Miss Bimp is here now. You get me a convict baseball, you'll show it to me first, right? Scout whispers. Sure. I nod. Will I have to pay? Nope. I get you one. You'll see. Free and clear, I say. You're all right, Moose. He smiles, his warm, low smile, and I scoot back to my seat. Chapter 15. Looking for Scarface. Thursday, January 10th, 1935. The next day is hot out. It was like this at home in Santa Monica sometimes. In the middle of winter, all of a sudden we'd get a summer day. On the way home from school, Annie told me we were meeting at the parade grounds. Then we're going to head down to some secret spot where you can watch the convicts walk up to the cell house at four o'clock. Annie says they do this all the time. It isn't even against the rules and sometimes they even see Capone. When I get to our apartment, my mum's music bag and her hat are waiting at the door. Oh, I forgot to ask. What, what did Scout say yesterday? She asks. He said he'd try. See? She smiles at me. Was that so bad? Natalie paces back and forth in front of the window, digging at her collarbone with her chin. My mum stops me and looks at me. She seems to be thinking of saying something about this, but changes her mind. Remember, just treat her like you would a normal sister. This isn't babysitting. Whatever you say, mum, I say, watching Nat fuss with her clothes like something's too tight. What's the matter? I ask Natalie. She's fine, my mother answers for her. We've been all over. We've had a lovely day. My mum glances quickly at me and then away. She looks upset. It's just hot, that's all. My mum rubs her neck. She wants her buttons. Well, yes, my mum admits. But I'm sure once you take her out, she'll forget all about it. Miss Kelly says it's just a matter of redirecting her attention. My mum's voice isn't quite so sure as her words are. She and Natalie have clearly had a hard time today. Don't you think it's kind of mean, taking her buttons away? My mum stares at the curtains. We have to try this. You'll take good care of her? She asks, her gloved hand on the door. Sure. I'll be back on the 6.30 my mum says. In my room, I dig through the drawer for my swim trunks. Come on, Nat, I say. Nat jumps up, motors to her room and shuts the door. I knock a hard rap rap. Natalie, let's go. She doesn't open the door. I knock again, then push it open a crack. She's standing in her bathing suit. Oh no, I say. You, You can't wear that. The warden was very clear about this. No girls are allowed to wear suits on account of the convicts. But how in the world do I explain this to Natalie? It's hot and she wants to wear her bathing suit. That's what we did at home. 
Oh, Natalie, you, you can't wear that. Hot, she says. Yeah, I know, but you can't wear your bathing suit. Put on something cool, but not that. Hot, she shouts. Okay, okay, you're hot. I'm hot too. Moose cool. Moose bathing suit. You're a girl, Natalie, and it's, it's you've got, you know, girl parts. You have to keep covered up. It's not like home. How do I explain this to her? Moose cool. She repeats. There is no arguing with this. Back in my room, I put on my corduroys again, which is like deciding to bake each of my legs. I find Nat's dress and hand it to her. She hands it back. Moose hot, Natalie cool. She's almost smiling, her face full of victory. She's not about to change. She's not that crazy. I would laugh if it wasn't so frustrating. I don't want to miss the cons because I'm curious, first off. But also because now I have to prove I'm not a goody-goody. Nat fusses with the straps of her suit. That doesn't look comfortable, Nat. Why don't you put on your blue dress? You always like your blue dress. I rub her dress against my cheek. See? Soft. I'm just thinking I'm wasting my breath when Natalie starts to take off her suit. I walk out of my room and close the door. All done, Nat? I ask when I hear her come out. When I turn around, she's standing in the living room, totally naked. I can feel my whole face get red. Even the tips of my ears burn. I don't want to see my sister naked. No, you can't do that. I run to the front window and yank the drapes closed. Now she's in the kitchen, lying on the cold floor. At least this is better. At least it isn't so bad from the back. I think about the time we took Natalie to my cousin Cricket's wedding. It was boiling that day too, and right in the middle of the ceremony, Natalie took all her clothes off. But she wasn't so old. It wasn't like now. The clock on the mantel is ticking. 3.15. We're supposed to meet at 3.30. It takes ten minutes to get to the west stairs on the parade grounds. I have five minutes to get out the door and a crazy naked sister on the floor. How does my mum get her dressed anyway? You can take your buttons outside, but only if you wear your blue dress. I get the button box from where my mum has hidden it inside the radio cabinet. What else am I supposed to do? I shake the buttons down by her ear and try to pull the dress over her head. She doesn't take it off. You have to wear underwear too. I won't look. She doesn't move a muscle. Her bare skin looks so white against the floor. Come on, Nat, I plead. Swim, she says. You want to go swimming? Natalie, swimming. Oh, okay. Here's what we'll do. If you wear your blue dress and your underwear, I'll take you swimming. I have no idea where I can take her swimming, but I'll worry about that later. Swim? Blue dress, underwear, swim later. I try to talk her in, in her language. Moose double, she says. Double what? Double swear. I laugh. Uh, Yeah, okay. I double swear. Miraculously, she puts on her dress, her underwear, her socks and shoes, and we're out the door. 3.25. If we walk fast, we'll make it. But every time I turn around, Nat stopped to rub her toe on the pavement. Then we have to count the birds. I try to get her to count and walk, but apparently this is impossible in Natalie world. 
I don't know what time it is when we walk across the parade grounds to the west stairwell. No one is there, but we can't be that late. I run down the stairs, leaving more and more distance between Nat and me. Then I hear them. I'm about to shout, wait up, when Piper says, come on, Annie, I've lived around prisons my whole life. I've never been inside the cell house. All we ever do is watch the cons walk up. Big deal. Don't you ever wonder what it's like in there? We got the biggest gangster in the whole world here. Don't you want to shake hands with Al Capone? The laundry plan isn't even finished. And Piper's already hatching another. I can't believe her. I strain my ears, but I can't hear what Annie says back. Annie's voice is soft and sweet. Piper's is loud and scratchy. Al Capone, Piper says, and then I hear a stumbling sound behind me. It's Natalie. She's on her feet, but a bush is whapping back and forth like she's just tripped over it. You okay? I ask. What's that? Annie says. And then suddenly Annie and Piper appear. Piper makes a gravelly sound with her throat. <clears throat> What's she doing here? Piper asks. I try to change the subject. Where are Teresa and Jimmy? Didn't you hear? Mrs. Madamum had a baby boy. Named him Rocky, Annie says. She wipes the sweat off her forehead. They have a bunch of relatives over to see the new baby and Teresa and Jimmy have to entertain their cousins. Piper looks from me to Natalie and back again. Can't your mum watch her? She asks. She teaches piano lessons. How often? Every day, I mutter, glancing back at Natalie who's using her dress to fan herself. We all get a good look at her ruffled underwear. Thank goodness she put it on. She better not do that when the cons are around, Annie says. They can't actually see us, right? Right, Piper says. Come on, they'll be up soon. The path is narrower here. So we go single file. Piper, then me, then Annie, then Nat. I've never walked over here and suddenly it seems like a bad idea. I'm wondering if maybe I should turn around when I see a huge chain link fence that blocks our path. The fence is maybe 12 or 14 feet high with three strands of barbed wire run across the top. It goes up the hill where it connects to the wreck yard wall and down the hill as far as I can see. Maybe even to the water, though I can't tell from here. In the distance on the other side of the fence, I see the steps that lead up to the recreation yard. High up in the corner of the wreck yard is a guard tower no bigger than a one-man ticket booth. I imagine there's a guy with a browning automatic training his sights on the convicts, watching to make sure they don't pull any funny business. That where they go up? I ask. Piper doesn't answer. She's fiddling with the lock. A key in her hand. A big drop of sweat drips down my face. More drops follow and my legs go stiff. You have the key? My voice croaks. Piper takes one look at me and snorts. Of course. You can't see him very well unless you go close. We do this all the time, Annie says. Her voice is kind. But can't the convicts see you? No. Not where we stand, Piper says, but we got to get in position before they come up the stairs. That's the important thing. Oh, you go ahead. 
I'll stay here. I tried to make my voice strong and clear. I can't take Natalie, you know, up there. Natalie, like she has anything to do with it. Chicken. Piper clucks, flapping her arms. Come on, Annie. She spits in the bushes. We're late. I watch them until they disappear behind a bush. Would you get a load of that guy, I hear Piper say. Oh, Piper, give it a rest, Annie says. Natalie and I settle on our side of the fence. I climb the hill to a spot that seems safe. Nat is still standing up. Nat, get down, I tell her. Natalie's eyes pass over me, the way an electric fan moves on its course, but to my surprise, she gets down. We settle in, huddle together on our bellies in the small space, which gives us good cover and a faraway view of the steps going up. I definitely don't want to be any closer, for once I'm actually glad Natalie's with me. Piper would have been ten times pushier if Natalie hadn't been here, and Annie was clearly on my side. We don't hear anything but birds chirping, and the lap of the water against the shore and the revving of a boat I don't see. Sound is strange near the water. Sometimes faraway things sound close, and then I hear a dull, steady, pounding sound. Footsteps. Dozens of them. Then the first head pops into view, a dark grey officer's hat, and another, then white hats, denim, shirts and pants. White hats, denim, shirts and pants. A strain to make out faces, but we're much too far away. One of those guys has a big scar down the side of his face. That's Al Capone, I whisper to Natalie. I wonder if Piper and Annie are close enough to spot Capone. I wonder if they can see the 85 printed on his back. The first guard stops at the top of the stairs. He steps aside and lets the prisoners pass one by one through the recreation yard door until only the guard is left. He takes one look down the steps and across to the industry buildings. Why is he doing that? Doesn't he already know they're all inside? Nat is on her belly behind me running a hand over the dirt, organising it in little piles. She doesn't notice the men. She doesn't notice anything. She could be anywhere. Anywhere there's dirt. 